So this morning I had an interesting experience of um, coming down here for the morning instructions with the wrong notebook. And uh, I was tempted to repeat that, but I was a bit more mindful this time. Just somehow felt moved to, to share that. It's, a, it's such a, a wonderful experience sometimes when life just kind of happens in that way. And then the, the opportunity to kind of, what, what do we do with that? Yeah. Oh yeah, the meditation teacher, so mindful, <laughs> picks up the wrong notebook. And I was really tempted to put, you know, bring both up to show you that they're actually quite similar. <laughs> and comes down and sits down and realizes, ah. And a great opportunity to then um, just come into the moment and trust. Actually, and trust in, in what is, is here beyond notebooks and ideas and how we've prepared or not ourselves to be alive. And so the invitation this evening as as you listen and also through the days, you know, as you as you listen to what we're sharing is to do that and not disengage from the own, your own sense of inner authority and, and wisdom. So all these teachings of wisdom and of love are a, a way of connecting to that which is already within us. And I know I've said that quite a few times. I just can't seem to stop myself saying it again. But it's really precious with the listening to teachings. Yeah, to notice the, the tendency that there might be there to, to see it as an external authority um, and just to give it more authority because it's coming from, from somewhere else. And to when we notice that, to just come back to feeling our own body, our own heart, our own mind and to open to what is, is here also. Because often, um, and we speak about this a lot actually amongst the teachers, it's uh, this kind of open secret. You know, a talk like this isn't reliant on one person giving it. Yeah? It's not this person who's, you know, sat down and contemplated and made some notes and is now speaking. It's not the creator of this experience. It doesn't lie just with this. And if this isn't an abdication of responsibility, <laughs> but just pointing out something really, uh, really profound, really beautiful that we can connect to. And I was thinking about this earlier today, and thinking, you know, there's actually some retreat settings, and some of you may have been on some of these retreats, where the, the talks are, are videos, they're recorded, and they're always the same. 
And yet, you know, people come back to these retreats and, and they listen to these talks and they find value in the talks and the instructions. So what does that mean? You know, what does that mean about the process actually of being alive? It's something I, I want to explore a little bit this evening. Hopefully I've, I've intrigued you slightly. So I want to continue um, from this morning and actually use some of the things we were exploring this morning to, to kind of um, give meat to, to this talk. Interesting metaphor again, a vegetarian <laughs> retreat center spoken by a vegan. But anyway, give some juice. And so this morning we were exploring body awareness and we were um, exploring both the wide body awareness, which is um, really useful, grounding in the body and calming, calming the mind and the body. It can also be a real resource, and maybe some of you had a sense of that. It can be a real sense of resource in that in that calming and in that aliveness, this wide body awareness. And then we also explored um, working with physical pain when it arises. So bringing the investigation element into our experience. Looking at what makes up the pain and also what can we see in the particular, in this particular experience of pain, what can we see that is beyond that particular experience? So we're using the particular to understand something that is true for more than the particular. <coughs> You're looking at me with, what you saying? What you talking about? So let's get a bit more practical. So we'll go back to the experience of knee pain. Yeah, so there's pain in the knee, and we're bringing our attention to that, that sense of pain. And we're exploring that, as we did this morning, the changeability of the sensations, um, the boundaries, the edges, what happens when we bring interest. You know, we're doing all of those things with this experience of, of knee pain, and we begin to see some pretty interesting stuff, hopefully. One thing that we begin to see is that the pain changes. Yeah? It changes. So even if it's chronic pain that we know, and even if it's pain that lasts for a long time, within that experience there will be change. It's not permanent. It's not, or we can say it's not the same. Yeah? It fluctuates. It fluctuates and changes. Another thing that we begin to see is that some of the dukkha, some of the discomfort or the suffering within the experience is in the resistance. Yeah? So we think, you know, when we think of pain, we think, okay, there's pain in the body, that's where the pain is. There's pain in the heart, that's where the pain is. When we start to look more closely and with interest, we see that some of the pain is in the relationship. 
And it's in the resistance and it's in the contraction around the pain. This is really interesting. The, the Buddha spoke about this really clearly in this beautiful um, simile of the two hours, which some of you probably know. Um, and he spoke about, he, he differentiated between the physical pain and the mental pain in this simile, but it actually works also with mental pain as the primary error. And the simile was, um, you know, it's like someone on a battlefield who's shot by an arrow. And this is the pain that arises naturally from being human. Yeah, so it's, for example, pain in the knee. For example, pain um, when I don't get what I want. You know, it's just, it's something that, or when I lose something or somebody that I really love. It's very, it's, it's part of being a human the first arrow. And then what happens to us as unskilled humans, in his words, is that there's another arrow that comes along. And that's the contraction, the resistance that we habitually add on top of the experience. So with physical pain, sometimes we can really see it in the body, as I was describing this morning. There'll be an area of pain, and then the body itself contracts around that pain, which increases the, the, the suffering. Or the mind contracts around it. You know, if only this pain wasn't here, I'd be, you know, I'd really be meditating. You know, if only this hadn't happened, I'd be really happy. Whatever that is, you know, if I was a better person, if I was a better meditator, this is also a great one, if I was a better meditator, I wouldn't be bothered by the pain. So there's all these secondary arrows that that come in and increase the suffering. And so these are, you know, what we would call optional. Yeah, sometimes they're very strong habits. But when we start looking at our experience, we see that some of the pain is not um, essential. Yeah, it's a place that we can work with. We can learn to relax the body. We can learn to change our habits of reactivity and resistance and contraction. The third thing that we we begin to see as we look at our experience in this way, as we investigate it in this way, is um, that the pain is not solid or separate in the way that we usually perceive it. Or we could say, you know, it, it doesn't actually have that essence of painfulness that we attribute to it in our habitual way of relating to, to physical pain if we stay with that. And so, you know, we can really see it. For example, if, if, it's, a, if it's a pain that you've experienced several times um, on, the, on the retreat. So it's the same sensation, yeah, in the same part of the body. How is it affected by um, tiredness? For example. How um, is it affected by um, different times of the day? You know, we can begin to see these patterns. How is it affected by my mood or mind state? 
Yeah, the same thing. Same thing. So is, you know, the, the question is really, really arises with hopefully some urgency for us. That if it's not, if it's not in the pain, if it's not in the thing, if that changes, if that is conditioned, if it doesn't always bring the same experience, then what's going on? What's going on? And what can we what can we learn here? What can we apply? So these three principles, the impermanence, the fact that the dukkha, the, the suffering, is also in the resistance, the contraction, the reactivity. And the fact that things are conditioned. We can begin to see this, not just in the knee pain, but we can begin to see this in more and more layers of our experience. And we see that, and we also then begin to see how the habitual way that we respond to life is not this. We usually don't see the impermanence. We attribute the dukkha to the thing. And we don't see the, the related nature of things, the mutually dependent nature of things. We see things as separate, as we've been saying. You know, me and that. And that tension that that creates. And as we look at this more, we can see more and more clearly that this is at the root of so much suffering in the world. Our own suffering, our own personal suffering, is in this not clear scene. And also the suffering in the world around us. So much of it. So how can we transform this? You know, how can we transform this human conditioned ignorance in the language of the teachings? Yeah. Of looking for happiness in that which is conditioned and does not last. Attributing our happiness to things that change and are inconstant. How do we transform this? So we begin by coming back to, I'm going to keep with that same example of the knee knee pain, and seeing again and again that what we perceive is not objective or neutral. Yeah. So the knee pain is not always the same. It's not always the same, and yet my response to it is, ah, knee pain again, don't want it. In the way. How can I get rid of it? Etc. We come back to seeing that the knee pain is dependent on conditions. Yeah, body, energy levels, 
personal history. You know, there's a lot of conditions at play. Mind state. In in Dharma teachings, the word that's being that's used for mind state is the Pali word citta, C-I-T-T-A. And I just want to say that it, it actually means mind heart. So it includes um, emotional states. When you say mind states, it includes also emotional states. It's not just thoughts and moods in the mind. So when we perceive, when we look at experience and we perceive that things are conditioned, that experience is conditioned, something like knee pain is conditioned, changeable. And that one of the conditions is the state of our mind. This is when it gets really interesting. One of the conditions of what we perceive is the state of the mind. I'm going to say this another way. Some of you are familiar with this way of saying this. What we start to notice is that not only is the the knee pain not a neutral and objective event, always occurring in the same way. What we notice is that it's conditioned by our own perception via the mind state. So there's always a way of looking that is affecting what we see. There's always a way of looking that's affecting what we see, what we perceive. So for example, if you're tired right now, that's affecting your listening. It's affecting what you're hearing. Yes, it's affecting the perception. If you're restless right now, that becomes a way of looking. It's affecting the perception of what is being said. Are you interested yet? Let's see if I can get you a bit more excited. So yesterday, Jake was speaking about the hindrances. And what he was um, touching on is you know, the, the way we relate to the hindrances, and yet also how the hindrances themselves shape our experience. Yeah? So we can see hindrances as a way of looking that's present right now. And it's affecting my experience. It's shaping my experience. So if I'm restless, that is shaping my experience. For example, the 45 minutes that it takes the bell to ring can feel like, you know, 45 days. Yeah? So that hindrance is a way of looking that's then affecting the experience. That's one example, and there's another beautiful, I can't resist, a beautiful simile from the Buddha about the hindrances, which really, really um, describes this, if I can find it. There it is. 
So in this simile, he describes um, the mind as a pool of water that is so clear that we can see our reflection in it like a mirror, like in a mirror. And that's the natural state of the mind. <laughs> Might not be our experience a lot of the time. It's <laughs> the natural state of the mind. It's the potential state of the mind. That it can be so clear, so quiet, like a clear pool of water. And then, how do the different hindrances affect this clear pool of water? This is the simile. So, he says, when um, sense desire arises in the mind, is present in the mind, it's as if the pool is suffused with a coloured dye. So, instead of being clear, it's coloured. You get that sense of how that colours perception. Yeah, it colours the mind. When aversion arises or is present, it's like the water in the pool is boiling. I, I, I love this one, it's so beautiful. It's like the water in the pool is boiling. <coughs> Again, how does that affect our perception? And we can really relate to that, you know, when we feel aversion and something happens, how does that trigger us? very different way because that boiling energy that boiling energy in the mind this is my favourite one when sloth and turpur when that sense of dullness and low energy is present it's like the pool of water is overgrown with algae (laughs) it's that real sense of the closeness and heaviness. And again, how does that shape our perception? You know, we know these experiences. How does that shape? And that is the state of mind. How does that shape the perception? When restlessness and worry are present in the mind, it's like the pool of water is constantly agitated by the wind. Yeah, there's wind blowing, it's constantly agitated, constantly agitated, so we can't see clearly. And again, how does that affect our perception? And when doubt is present, it's like the water in the pool is very muddy. Yeah, so it's so muddy we can't see anything, not the bottom, not our reflection, completely obscured. It's a really beautiful imagery of, of these ways of looking, how the way of looking is always present and it affects what we perceive. Most of the time we're not aware that there are these lenses in the way, there are these filters in the way. We're not aware of that. And part of what opens for us with practice is to become aware. You know, to start to know, one, that ways of looking are present, and two, is what way of looking is present, and how is it affecting my experience, and how can that change experience. And so I want to read something from my favorite book these days, 
and um, it's a book written by a, a Jesuit priest called Gregory Boyle. I have to apologize for anyone who will listen to this recording in the future. I've used this story at least four times already. <laughs> so, um, Gregory Boyle w- um, works in um, some of the, the poorest um, neighborhoods in Los Angeles and um, areas where there's a lot of, um, a lot of gang, gang culture, gang violence. And this particular story is not to do with gangs, but it's to do with uh, something that happened in his church in the mid-80s. So this was a period where um, the US government changed some legislation to do, I think, with illegal immigrants. And so um, a lot of of people who were in the US became um, refugees, to a sense, like like we know um, in what's happening in Europe now. And... um, this, this church um, opened its, its doors and became um, a sanctuary for these, um, they were called undocumented, undocumented individuals, so people who are not in the system. And so people began to sleep there, to shelter there, and sleep there in the nights in particular. And so at one time they had um, about 100 people, 100 men sleeping in the church every night. And, um, and he, this is what he says. He says, you know, once the homeless began to sleep in the church at night, there was always the faintest evidence that they had been there. And the faintest evidence was a smell. So every Sunday morning, they would do their best to clean the church and spray it with air fresheners. But it says the smell would always linger. And people in the congregation started to grumble. They weren't so happy that their church smelt. And uh, he says, you know, they were even starting to talk about churching elsewhere. And so um, Gregory Boyle and the other priests decided to address this. And the way they addressed it was in the Sunday Mass one morning. And so, you know, he goes up to the pulpit, and this is what he says. And so he asks the congregation... What does the church smell like? And there's silence. <laughs> so he says, you know, people are mortified by being asked this. You know, everyone's looking down. Women are kind of searching frantically in their handbags for something. You know, no one's making eye contact. But he's, you know, he's persistent. He says, come on now. What does the church smell like? And then finally, one old guy who doesn't really care what people think of him, who says, the church smells like feet. (laughs) And the priest responds, and he says, excellent. You know, thank you, excellent. But why? Why does it smell like feet? And another person in the congregation responds and says, because the homeless people slept here last night. And he responds back and he says, yeah, that's true. And why do we let that happen? Why do we let that happen here? 
and someone else responds and says, because it's what we've committed to do. It's what we have committed to do. Well, comes the question back, why would anyone commit to do that? Why would anyone commit to do that? And someone else responds and says, because it's what Jesus would do. Well then, what does the church smell like now? What does the church smell like now? And one man stands up and bellows. It smells like commitment. And another woman, it smells like commitment. And another woman stands up. And she waves her arms in the air. And she says, it smells like roses. It smells like roses. And the whole church starts laughing. Everyone in the church starts laughing. And he writes, the stink in the church, the smell in the church, hadn't changed. What had changed was how the folks, how the people saw it. Yeah, The way of looking is what has changed. Not the actual event. Smell is still there. The way of looking has changed so radically (coughs) from something we don't want to something we do want. And so intentionality also can affect what we perceive, how we perceive. So it's the mind state, the intention, the alignment, all of these can shape our perspective, can shape the way of looking, and can shape the actual experience, the actual event. And this is, you know, this is huge for us as human beings. So if we look at this example, you know, there's the contact of the smell, contact of the smell, and that is unpleasant. That hasn't changed. That contact hasn't changed. But then the mind plays a part in how we see it. That's called fabrication in Dharma teachings. The mind fabricates experience, plays a part in the fabrication of experience. And that affects perception. When we look at that same, if we look at this story, and we look at it from the lens of impermanence, we can see that that experience of the smell is not fixed or solid. Yeah. It may be unpleasant, but it doesn't follow that I don't want it. And it can change to be pleasant if I connect it to a sense of generosity and compassion. The discomfort, the dukkha, is not in the smell. This is such a great example. It's just a smell. It's not in the smell. It's the in the re- reaction to the smell. In the I don't want it. The I don't want it. 
what happens when we shift the perspective? It's not my church. It's our church. Yeah. It's Jesus' church. You know, what, what happens to the experience? We actually, in this case, connect to those qualities that brought us to church in the first place. Why do people go to church? Why do people go to meditate? It's to generate and nourish compassion and generosity and laughter and lightness and a sense of what we share. So the mind perceives and the perception is not fixed and the mind itself is conditioned. So whatever way of looking is present is itself conditioned. It is in itself is not fixed. And that is such good news. Such good news. It means that we can work with this. You know, and science is coming in these days and saying these same things that the Dharma teachers have been saying for, for 2,600 years. You know, saying the mind is pliable. What we perceive is not necessarily what is actually happening. I have this beautiful example from Rajan Amaro, the uh, abbot of Amravati, and he said that, um, you know, Jake mentioned watching football yesterday. So if you're watching a football match and you're watching the ball going from the foot of one player to the foot of one of the other player, yeah? Everyone here seen that? Even if you don't like football, you've probably been exposed to that experience. That's not what we're actually seeing. The mind, the brain, doesn't actually have the capacity to follow that stimulus at that speed. It cannot actually what it's actually connecting the dots. Yeah? One football player running and their foot, the ball another football player in their foot. And it's filling in the gap. And yet, you know, what would any of us say? We see it. We see it. You know, so that's the beauty of fabrication. It's a really useful thing. But if we're not aware of that happening all the time, and we take everything that we see, feel, perceive, think, as solid fact. That's where the dukkha comes in. That's where suffering comes in. And it can be really, really uh, mind-blowing to, to explore fabrication for ourselves. I had a, um, an experience of this um, this winter in India, I um, I spend five between five and six weeks a year in a in a leprosy community in central India. Um, for a month of that period, my partner and I um, organize and facilitate a, a service work retreat in in the community, working with, with the people there. And over the years that I've been going, that we've been going there, I've picked up some Hindi, you know. But seriously, it's about the level of a two-year-old. So, you know, it's random words kind of put together. 
And a friend of mine was, was there with us um, this year for, for the second time. Um, and he is really fluent in Hindi. You know, studied it really, really well. He knows all the grammar. He can really speak it fluently. And he, he said to me, after a few days, he said to me, isn't it interesting that I know Hindi really, really well, and you don't. He was very kind. <laughs> and yet, and yet, the people here understand you much better than they understand me. And we both were just we just sat there and said, "Yeah, what what's going on there? What is going on there? Because it's true, you know. He speaks to them and they're like, huh? And I speak to them in my two-year-old." Way and, and they get it. So, so what, what's going on? And we really kind of contemplated it together. And we realized that there's a lot of things going on, but one big thing that's happening is that when I speak, I have the expectation to be understood. <laughs> and because they know me, because I've been going there for so many years, they have the expectation to understand me. Yeah? Whereas this other person, who they don't know, and is, you know, a, a, a white Westerner like me, they don't have the expectation to understand him. And he doesn't have the expectation to be understood, which is interesting. And so something like that, you know, which seems really objective and scientific, you speak the language, you don't speak the language. They will understand you, they won't understand you. No, it's more complicated than that. Our expectations, our views, they come in, they affect that exchange. And, you know, I, it made me realize, contemplating that, it made me realize why in other parts of India, my two-year-old level English doesn't work so well. <laughs> it was like, ah, that's why. Because there isn't that mutual trust in sense of, ah, oh, we, we can communicate here. And so when we become aware of this, and when we see it more and more in our experience, and again, can't emphasize this, this enough, seeing this in our own experience, how fabrication happens, how ways of looking affect experience. You see, the more we see it, the more we can remember it. And so a hindrance arises, and we realize, ah, it's a way of looking. It's a way of looking. It's not permanent. It's not solid. It's conditioned. Some of the suffering is optional. We realize that, and that creates so much more space. So much more space and room to, um, to have more choice actually. We become less hooked by the habitual ways of looking that we have. And we all have habitual ways of looking. Yeah, we all have habitual ways of looking. We get to know them more. They lose their power. They still arise. But they lose their power. They're less potent. So we're more able to... They arise less. We're more able to let go of them when they arise. And we're also um, freeing up our energies 
to cultivate and invite ways of looking that are skillful and are wholesome and that lead to freedom. Yeah, they also exist. They also exist. So ways of looking such as interest that we've been working with so much here. That's a way of looking. Of looking at experience. Kindness. Generosity. Compassion. Joy. Spaciousness. And this deeply, deeply nourishes us. Deeply nourishes us. And creates a, a much wider base of possibility. And maybe I'll just finish with one example from, from my own experience um, of working with this recently. And just how powerful it can be. About a month ago, I knew that I was, um, um, I was going into a, a situation which um, triggers some of my strong habitual patterns. Particularly patterns around perfectionism. And I knew that I was going into the situation. I've been in that situation many times. I knew that I would get triggered. And I knew that those patterns, when they're triggered, cause a lot of suffering to myself and others. Not so nice being around a perfectionist sometimes. <laughs> And I was really taking time, and I, I had done a lot of work with this um, for the last year, I was really taking time to reflect, okay, how now I'm going into the situation that's going to trigger me, it's going to last for 10 days. How am I going to work with this? How am I going to work with this? And all I was coming up with are my usual ways of, oh, I'm going to really look at it, and you know, I'm going to um, make sure that if I see it, I don't let it take control. And as I was listening to that inner dialogue, I could see that that was the same thing. <laughs> and that's not going to work. You know, it's the same thing. And this is the beauty of the practice. You know, we can listen, we can see. And we have kind of enough space, enough kindness to see that. And I was talking to a friend. And as we finished the, the conversation, I said, oh yeah, you're going to this place. Have a great time. And it was like, light bulb. Okay. So what if, instead of approaching this in my habitual way, I actually ask the question, how can I enjoy this? How can I enjoy this? What would bring joy? And it was so helpful you know, so helpful to just have that different way of looking towards a very old, very familiar pattern and a very well-known situation. Just to keep bringing that in. It brings in so much more lightness, but so much power. How can I enjoy this? And so I even asked some of my friends that were there if they saw me looking too serious, <laughs> to come and tickle me or tell me a joke. Um, but they actually didn't have to do that. That was the really interesting thing. I was a bit disappointed and would have been happy to be tickled. 
um, and joked with more often. Um, but it didn't even arise because it was such a, such a powerful shift. And this pattern came up a lot, but there was the space. Is this enjoyable? And is it necessary? What happens if I relax? And life could really, really flow. Really, really flow. And I could feel the benefits and the poor souls who've been working with me in this environment for many years could feel the benefits. Yeah. So, you know, this really works. Really works. Really worth looking at. And finding our own way into So let's just have a, a quiet moment together to, to bring this to a close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.